1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Because of the length of the chapter, I'm not going to read it ahead of time. Uh, many of you know this uh, event in, the, in Israel's history, in David's history. Notice I didn't say a story. Because oftentimes when, uh, you know, in the scripture, you know, we think of Jonah and the, the fish or the whale. And we think of David and Goliath. It brings to mind uh, children's church. And it also brings to mind that it's a story, right? Because they spend a lot of deal on those things in, uh, in Sunday school. But I want to encourage you that this is not a story. This is history. These, these are things that really happened, okay? And, and that's why I don't like to use the word story, although I find myself doing it because it's kind of common to say that. But it's, it's history, these things happened, and so remember that. So we're not going to read the chapter through as I normally like to do if the chapter was shorter. And many of you know this, uh, this event very well. But it begins with a very interesting time because Saul, as you know, in chapters 13 and 15, we see God uh, really upbraiding Saul for his disobedience, for his impatience, and God tells Samuel to basically tell him he's done. And that may sound harsh, but God expects a lot, especially when, there's a, when he has a leader, and that leader is not willing to listen to him. That's a real problem, because we as people, we need to listen to God. And if you're a leader claiming, to be, claiming any form of leadership, it's important that you're teachable. It's important that you listen uh, because um, the despots of the world don't listen. The despots of the world are despots because they do what they want to do, and everybody must submit. And Saddam Hussein was one such character. Muammar Gaddafi was another one. Yasser Arafat was another one. Bin Laden was another one. And all of these men are gone. <laughs> They're gone. They didn't even reach old age. And so it's important that we are obedient. And Saul, at this time in this passage that we're going to look at tonight, he was in a very peculiar place. If you remember, if you just look in your Bibles uh, in, in chapter 16, you'll notice that in verse 13 of chapter 16, it says that the Spirit of the Lord, and, and this is again after uh, God had uh, told Saul that he was basically finished, that a man better than him was going to take his place. And remember, he tells Samuel to go down to Bethlehem, which is in Judah, and to go to the house of Jesse and to anoint one of his sons. So Samuel, being the good man that he is, the obedient prophet that he is, he goes. He doesn't ask questions. He goes, and he remember Saul's, or I'm sorry, uh, Jesse's seven sons are passed before him, starting with the eldest down to the youngest. And, um, and not, neither of them were the Lord's choice. And so Samuel says, is there anybody left? And they said, well, you know, David, he's out in the field. He's with the sheep. But, you know, and, and Samuel's like, well, wait. We're not going to sit until he comes. And so they go and they get him. And the Lord says, that's the one. That's the one. Now, see, you and I have known David for a long time. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard David, 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 the Psalms of David, the David and Goliath. We're so familiar with David, but I want, to, want you to kind of strip all of that away tonight and, and think of David as being, at this time, as being nobody. He wasn't the big hero that you and I know of him. He was just nobody out in the field. 
He was the youngest of his, he was the eighth in his family of the sons of Jesse. Insignificant. They didn't really care. They didn't even invite him, actually, to the sacrifice in Bethlehem. That's how unimportant he was. And isn't it just like the Lord to take what's unimportant and that is shoved away that nobody wants? It's just like the Lord to say, that's the one I really care about. I mean, God cared about the other guys, but he's the one. He's the one I, wanna, I want to anoint as king. And so he does. And notice what happens in uh, chapter 16 there in verse 13. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And notice, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And then notice the unfortunate thing, just the opposite happens with Saul in verse 14. Notice, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And not only that, if that wasn't bad enough, a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. A, a, a devil, a demonic spirit, goes and troubles Saul. It's bad enough, the Spirit of God departing from you, but then another spirit coming and troubling you. And that's exactly what happened. And that's the condition that we find Saul in, a very deposed leader, uh, being uh, uh, oppressed by the enemy, very unsure of himself now, feeling very insecure. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you felt, I, I know I have, I felt very insecure at times. And then maybe somebody tells you something that makes you feel even more secure, and you're like, how low can this day go? Have you had those days? I've had those days. So this is, this is the, the chapter, this is the very place where Saul is in. He, I, I liken Saul right now to be kind of like in a, you know, in, a, in a lawn chair, and he's just kind of sitting there, and his crown is kind of crooked. He's just kind of sitting there, you know, thumb, you know thumbling his thumbs and, and kind of has a deposed look on his face, not knowing what to do, how to feel, feeling scared of this army of the Philistines, and being very intimidated by this Goliath that keeps coming out into the field and challenging everybody. And this is the place where we find him. And now he's going to be engaging with the Philistines, being in a compromised place, not hearing from God, again because of his disobedience, and there's very few things worse than facing a major crisis without the Lord. That's a very bad place to be. Thank God you and I, Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We, we don't have to worry about that because he's always with us, and I'm very glad for that. But this chapter will be a watershed moment for David. This is when everything changes. He goes from being obscure and unimportant to being a national hero overnight. That's like being a beggar on the street and winning the, uh, the, the New York State Lotto or, or the, the, the Powerball and winning like $500 million, you know, even after taxes, like $239 million, something like that, in cash, in cash, you know. And then you go from nobody living on the streets to being a celebrity. Everybody knows you. Everybody wants a piece of your money. They could care less about you. Let's just cut to the chase, right? But that's David. And not only that, is that he will not only arise from obscurity and become a national hero, but he'll be catapulted to success. And finally, at some point, he'll be taking the throne. But he's still going to be on the run for a number of years, a handful of years, before Saul is actually killed in battle. But during that time, he's going to be the archenemy of Saul. Saul is going to be so jealous of David after this event. And David only continues to rise. And again, the Spirit of God is upon him, so there's only, it's only an uphill for David. And Saul is going downhill. Can you see how that could happen? 
Saul is going downhill. David is going uphill. He's a national hero. He's going to be going out in all their battles against the Philistines, coming back with, you know, flush with victory every single time. The Lord is with him. The women are even singing about him, which is even worse. Because as soon as the ladies start singing and the king hears about it, there's a death sentence on his head because Saul is just jealous to the bone. He can't stand that they're not singing about him. They're singing about this guy, this guy who used to play the harp for me, play the guitar for me when I was distressed by an evil spirit. Now he's like, what's left for him to take but the throne? But given time, it's going to happen. It's an important application for us in this chapter because it's more than just David fighting a battle, this very graphic battle. It's more than just a battle. It's about faith. It's about trusting in the Lord. And that's something that I would venture to say all of us could stand to have more of. Faith and trust in the Lord. And God will give that to you liberally as he wills. You just got to be earnest. You got to be earnest and you got to be prayerful about it. I think so often my, my life can be, I can go on autopilot. And if you're a Christian, you can go on autopilot. And we don't ask for anything. Remember when Jesus, when his disciples came to him, and, 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 and Jesus says, uh, so far you guys haven't asked anything. Ask and you receive, let your joy be full. But they never asked. And so they never received. I wonder how much they could have received had they asked, even while Jesus was with them. But they didn't. And so it begs the question, even when we were praying for Jovi, if we hadn't prayed, would she have been healed? Maybe not. If she hadn't have been praying, if we hadn't have been praying, would he have done it anyway? Not sure. Maybe not. But we did, and she is. So I would rather err on the side of prayer. It even rhymes. You can make a song about that. Err on prayer. Actually, it's not even erring on prayer. You never err when you pray. You're always making an advance. You never err when you pray. And so, let's look at uh, verse 1 here. And it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered at Sochal, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Sochal and Azekah, or Azekah, in Ephes Damim. And I'm going to show you a few pictures tonight. And the picture that you see on the screen, you might want to shut the lights off, or at least the center lights, uh, Scotty. Uh, for those of you who may be listening on the radio, or at some point you will be, basically you're, you're standing on a mountain, you're standing on a very large hill, and you're looking south, and you're going to see two mountains. And right in the center of the two mountains, going, e going from left to right, east to west, is the Elah Valley. The Elah Valley is, is very broad. It's very expansive. But this is just one part of it. But the mountain on the farthest side, the, 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 the farthest side is Sochal. That's the, the mountain that the Philistines were gathering on. And over to the right of that mountain... Over in the clearing there on the right-hand side is where, that's Ephes Damim. In fact, I'll, I'll show you another uh, slide if you can see this. Ephes Damim is this place over on the right side, and then that mountain right in the back is Sochow. And then um, 
Saul's camp is over on the far left side where the, the, the Israelites are, and the place of the battle is right there in the valley, and, and that's where the battle occurred. And in fact, this area right here, when we do go to Israel, our, our, our bus comes down here. Oops, wrong thing. Our bus comes down here, and we, we go up to here, and we park alongside the road, and we walk down the hill, and we go right around the side of this mountain here, and there's a really grassy plain there where we sit, and we have a Bible study, and, and that's where we spend our time, and we, we talk about this battle that has occurred there. And um, this next picture is uh, actually myself and uh, Jeff Gallatin along the edge of, the, of, the, uh, of that side, and there's a stream that goes right down through here, uh, normally in the rainy season. Right behind him, there's a, a trough here, and this is like where the water comes, and this is the stream we believe that David picked up those five stones. We're going to read about that tonight. And, uh, and, and that's where it all, that's where he picked up his stones to fight Goliath. And where that is, let me just bring you back to another thing here. Um, it would be right over in this area, right behind this mountain right here is where that picture was taken. Right on the other side of that. It's like a cliff there. And there's a, there's a stream that goes right down the center, right down the side there. And, and it goes out all the way over here where David picked up those stones. And so we joke around when we go there. You know, we're always looking for the bloody stone, the one that actually hit Goliath, you know. So we like to play around and have fun with that. But anyway, uh, let's see. So verse 2, it says, so that's the setting of where this battle occurred, where the battle occurred. And... Verse 2, it says, And Saul and the men, I got one more slide, uh, Scott, after this, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. It says, And Saul and the men of Israel, notice they were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah. And I showed you where that was over, over here on the, on the uh, left side, over here in this area here. And the men of Israel gathered together, they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, they stood on Sochal, this mountain over here this far one, and the Israelites stood on this mountain over here, and then the battle was in the valley. What you can't see is about this much space goes right through the middle of those two mountains. And so there's a lot of space in here, and it's a perfect place for a battle, honestly. But in this case, there really wasn't a battle. It was two men coming out, but we'll get to that. So notice, the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, which is Sochow, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, which I believe is... Uh, um, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, I forget the name of it. That's okay. So, and there was a, with a valley between them, and notice verse 4, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Six cubits in a span, depending on how, there's different ways that, that they'd measure a, a, a cubit. It could be uh, uh, 18 inches, it could be 21 inches. So what that really puts uh, Goliath is about somewhere between nine foot nine inches to ten and a half inch, or ten and a, I'm sorry, nine foot nine inches tall to ten and a half feet tall. So this is one big guy, and I'm sure as as tall as he is, he's probably wide like a refrigerator. So this is a a very formidable man, and this is the first time we meet Goliath in Scripture. And notice it says that he was a Philistine. And it's been a while since we talked about this, so let me just share with you just a few moments about who the Philistines were. 
The Philistines were a non-Semitic people, which when we say non-Semitic, we mean they, they didn't come from the line of Shem. It's non-Semitic is Shem, Shemitic or Shem. A person who comes from the line of Shem, like the Jews, are Semitic. But a non-Semitic person is someone who came from either Ham or Japheth. Does that make sense? Because you remember Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the Philistines came from the tribe of Ham, and they're recorded for us in Genesis chapter 10 in the Table of Nations. You can go and check that out if you like. But basically, they came from the island of Crete, around that area in the Mediterranean, many, many uh, centuries before Christ. They, they left Crete. They tried to come down uh, south to uh, Africa, to Egypt specifically. The Egyptians wouldn't let them come in, so they went up the coastline and they settled where you in Canaan, modern-day Israel. And so they became the perennial enemy of Israel. And so these are who the Philistines are, a very pagan people uh, who came from Crete or Kaftorum. Kaslusim is, is the name of it in Genesis 10. But also, let's look at this, uh, this Goliath. Where did he come from? Who was he? And again, I w- I'd like to share with you just a proposed... Uh, genealogy really quick, uh, since we're on this um, talk about uh, Goliath. Goliath. But let me back up to, this will be very quick, I promise. In Genesis chapter 6, remember that it says that there were giants in the land, and this is before the flood. There were giants in the land, and the, and the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, these false, we, we, we believe they were angels, physical, who made, uh, they, they manifested themselves in physical form, had intercourse with the women, and created this race of people who are the giants. That's who the Nephilim were, the fallen ones. We, we believe that's the case. But notice in Numbers, uh, so, so the Nephilim were around in Genesis chapter 6. Before the flood, God wiped the earth out, mainly because of the infiltration of this race, but even after the flood, they, they were still being in, the, the, these things still happened with these fallen angels, we believe, these Nephilim or fallen ones. But notice what it says in Numbers 13:33. It says, and this is speaking of when the, the Jews were going into the promised land. Remember, there were uh, 12 spies that went into the land. And it says they were, there we saw the giants, literally the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, come from, who came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. And so we know these Nephilim are a race of giants. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28, it says, where can, we, where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. And so we have Anakim here in the, in, the, in the genealogy, so all we have to do is fill in some of these blanks. And Joshua chapter 15 gives us the filling in of those blanks. It says, Now Caleb, when they were dividing the land after they came into the promised land, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, remember that, which is called Hebron. And Arba was the father of Anak. Anak. So we have the Nephilim, Arba, he gave birth to Anak, and then the, the result of the offspring of Anak were the Anakim. And it says Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, and, and it gives their names there. And then finally in Joshua eleven twenty two, it says, none of the Anakim were left in the land um, of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, Gath, 
and Ashdod. And where did Goliath come from? Gath. So this race of giants continues. And so we, we can see that, uh, let me see, did I miss anything there? I think I got everything. So this is a proposed genealogy of Goliath. And, and, and there is some speculation of, of, some, of, of the last part, but we believe he's uh, part of the Anakim nonetheless. But let's go ahead and move on to verse uh, 5. Notice what Goliath had. He had a bronze helmet, and you can go ahead and shut this off, Scotty. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. 5,000 shekels, that's roughly between 125 to 200 pounds of brass on him. That weighs more than most of you ladies in the room. Uh, actually, if you're, actually, probably all of you. Let me just say all of you. Yeah, that's safe to say, right? It weighs much more than any of you. So um, <laughs> I'm in deep water here, aren't I? Um, so that's a lot of weight to carry around on you. Notice, and he had bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, which is approximately 15 to 25 pounds on, the, on, on a spear that he's got. 15 or 25 pounds just on the head of that thing. I mean, that's like throwing a bowling ball like this, right? You got a 15-pound, 25-pound bowling ball, and you got that at the end of a piece of wood. That wood is probably that big around, and it's got that, you know, I mean, commission getting hit by that. All I can say is good night. And notice... And a shield-bearer went before him, as if this guy wasn't already a formidable foe. He's got somebody going before him, holding his shield uh, before him. Goliath, and I've said this before, he, he was a genetic nightmare. There was something really, this whole race of giants, uh, one of Goliath's brothers, we believe he's a brother of his, he actually had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. This guy had 24 digits. I mean, this is like three-mile island scary kind of people. You know, something, mutation, went, I mean, who knows what that was. But again, it, we, it could be a, a spiritual thing. You know, these uh, angels back in Genesis, there, there's a lot about that, but we're not going to get into. But very interesting race of people. Notice in verse 8, Then he stood, and he cried out to the armies of Israel, and he said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? He's taunting them, am I not a Philistine? And you, the servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Notice the, just the disdain, the, the arrogancy, the pride of this genetic nightmare, Goliath. He's just the biggest bully you've ever seen. He's the kind of guy in high school, guys. He would always be the big guy on, and, and the biggest guy in the, in the school, and he was just always beating you up and taking your lunch money. You know, that kind of individual, just fierce and ugly and, and rude. The kind of guy you just wanted to beat up yourself, you know. And, and this is who Goliath was. In his worldview, Goliath's worldview would say this, might makes right. 
The bigger I am, the more I've got. The bigger, the bigger the weapons, the greater I am. That was his philosophy. You better believe it was because Goliath was all about the flesh. He was all about the flesh. He was a warrior in his prime. And David was nothing. David was a youth who followed sheep around in a pasture. But he was a warrior, and as we've already seen him, shooting his mouth off. What does it say in Proverbs 16, verse 18, the, the verse we know all so well? Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we are going to see this scripture come to life tonight as we read this event of David and Goliath. Literally, this is what happened to him boasting in all of his pride. And you can almost see, you know, whenever you see somebody opening their mouth and they're that proud, you're just like, oh boy, they're going to fall hard. Eventually they fall hard. And Goliath's day was that day. But notice, God used a shepherd boy who nobody knew about, obscure, nobody even cared about him. Again, you and I know David very well because he's, a, he's a, one of the biggest characters in Israel's history. But I want you to forget all that tonight. I want you to think brand new. Think of that nobody knows him. He doesn't even know who he is. Actually, I think he does. He was one of the few people, I think, who knew who he was in God. And God honored him bigly. Can I use that term? Bigly? The Lord honored him bigly. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul tells us, For you see your calling, brethren. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Does this sound like David and Goliath? It fits it right to the T. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Goliath was about glorifying himself. And David was like, Lord, I'm nothing, but in your hands I'm something. And David was. He was a young boy. He was probably, who knows, maybe he was in his teen, he was in his teen years. Could be 16, 17, 18 years old by the time this battle occurs. But throughout Bible history, we see God doing that same thing. He used Joseph, a man sold into slavery. So his brothers wrong, you know, just got rid of him. He was wrongfully imprisoned. And then he becomes the second in command over all of Egypt and the deliverer of the Jewish people. We see it with Daniel, too. This wonderful young man who is a, a young man, very young man, when he is taken captive, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes Israel, takes Judah and, and Jerusalem into captivity. He uses him of the royal line captive. An excellent spirit was within him, and God used him to be one of the most influential people in the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and Cyrus. God loves to take the foolish things, foolish things like David, foolish things like Joseph, foolish things, people like Daniel, who is obscure, nobody knows. And he likes to use us. I kind of fall in that category of being a nobody. Seriously, I mean, when you know how great God is and, and really who we are and how great his grace is toward us and where we were before we came to the Lord, we were less than nobody. And now we're kind of on the map of being somebody because he knows us and he loves us. He's always loved us. Have you ever felt that way? Living in obscurity, 
Nobody really knows you. Nobody maybe even really cares. The people who know you love you. That's how David was. See, God can use you because I fit, I fit that bill of being nobody <laughs> and being base. <laughs> but when they send out a man like Goliath and Goliath standing in the field with all of his armor and, and provoking and saying, send out a man, anybody, I don't care, I'm going to rip the skin off his bones. Bring him out, bring him out, come on, let's see what you got. This is called representational combat. Instead of both armies going together and all this collateral damage and all this bloodshed, for some reason, in this occasion, they decide, you know what, we're going to forbear all that. Let's, let's just send out two champions. Let them duke it out. Sometimes I think a presidential race ought to be like that. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Instead of having the, the debates and all that stuff, just get a, get, put them in a ring and tape up their hands and put on boxing gloves and just have it out. The, the best guy wins, right? So verse 10, the Philistine said, the Philistine, Goliath, this is what he said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Their knees are shaking together because in each one of those man's hearts, you got to believe that they're thinking, maybe I should go out. Maybe I should go out. Man, I just don't have the guts to do it. And Goliath did this for how many days? 40 days, morning and evening. In the morning he came out, he went away. In the evening he came out. In 40 days you're getting taunted, and every man is thinking about it. At night when they're sleeping, they're thinking, I know he's going to do it tomorrow. Am I going to be the guy? Should I be the guy? Do I even have it within me to do it? Do I believe God? Do I have faith enough in God that I can do this? Oh, I don't. And then they look at their leader, Saul who's head and shoulders taller than anybody, he should have been the one to go out and engage Goliath. Even he is shaking in his boots. And I can't say I blame him. I mean, if any one of us were there and it was really happening to us, we'd all be scared. And there's nothing wrong with fear. It's what you do with the fear. Do you cave with the fear? Do you run away from God when you're in fear? Or do you get on your knees and pray to God to give you courage and strength and wisdom and direction? That's the way you should do it. And that's what David, his heart was already prepared because David had a lot of training out there in the pasture with those sheep. He had many predators coming after those sheep, lions and bears. And David defended those animals. He beat them, he killed them for attacking his father's sheep. He had plenty of exercise and practice with that sling and those stones. Can you imagine? I can almost see this, you know, as a young boy. And let me just get carried away here because I think, you know, when I was young, I remember, you know, guys, you remember this when you were little, there, there were certain tools that you had, or even as you grow up, there are certain tools that you have to work with. And you get used to using those tools because you use them every single day. And you're very comfortable with your tool, the one that has, it almost fits your hand. You can almost see your fingerprints on, you know, emblazoned on it. 
and it's something that you're very familiar with. You've tested it. You've used it so much, you know how it's going to operate under certain conditions, whether it's cold, whether it's hot. This little bearing kind of acts funny when it's really cold and greasy. You know all those things. You know it like you know a person because that tool is something that you use every single day. And a sling and a stone was something that David used every day as he was out there in the fields. And I'm sure he had times where he was just killing time and just picking up a rock and just winging it around like that and just hitting a tree or, or hitting something or maybe even taking a little pebble and hitting one of those sheep in the rear end to get him moving. You just never know what he might have been doing. But he was an excellent shot. He had, he had produced it. <laughs> you had to do that, didn't you? I love it. And, uh, yeah, and so, you know, he, he would use that. He knew. He knew it. But he knew his God even more. He didn't need fancy things. And so, Saul, I'm sorry, the Philistine, Goliath, I defy the armies of the living God. And when Saul and Israel heard, they were afraid, they were afraid. And again, by this time, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, was upon David. And if there was ever a time that Saul needed it, needed the spirit of God, it was now. He needed to be empowered to have boldness, to have courage. And there, it just wasn't there. It just wasn't there. And he was the only match for Goliath, and he was shaking in his boots. And the rest of his army became complicit in his cowardice. The leader was shaking in his boots, and so what does everybody else around him do? I mean, this guy is taller than anybody else. He should be the one. And, and now he's freaking out. He's uns, ins, unsure of himself, very, in, you know, feeling very insecure. And that bleeds off onto other people, doesn't it? That's so, what's one thing that made some of the greatest generals in U.S. history when they were fighting in World War II and World War I, some of the greatest generals would just look at fear and they just had this leather look about them. They were like, we're going to go in and we're going to rip them apart. Even though inside they're dying inside thinking, I don't think I'm going to make it today. But their men followed them because they had, they had courage and they just went after it. That's the kind of person they needed at that time, but it wasn't, it wasn't happening. But see, David had a secret that Saul knew nothing about. And Zechariah... Um, um, actually, I'm going to get to that. I, I got a little ahead of myself. Verse 12, it says, Now David, he was the son of, the, of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the, in the days of Saul. And when you think about Bethlehem or Ephrathite of Bethlehem, what does that make you think of? It immediately made me think of the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Micah 5 verse 2 where it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Speaking of who? Jesus. And this is the place where Jesus was born, also the place of where Jesse lived, where David was born. It was the place where Jesus was born. And now in this place, and then it says, the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle. We learned these guys' names in the previous uh, chapter. Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And these were the oldest sons of Jesse who passed before Samuel, if you remember, in the previous chapter. And so David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul, which makes sense. They were the oldest, they were part of the army, and so they went. We don't know uh, much about the four other brothers. 
It's interesting that later on in this chapter, we will see that Eliab, who was the oldest, who ridiculed David so badly when he came, when he, we're going to see this shortly, he ridicules him for coming to the battle that later on when David does become king, who does he put in charge of Judah as far as uh, leadership? He puts his brother, Eliab. What grace. Can you imagine that? I mean, th- these are real brothers. Think about it, guys. Think of you being, I'm, I'm the youngest in my family, and my brother is, you know, six years older than I am. That would be like him ridiculing me and really putting me down, making me feel horrible, and always had, you know, I mean, from David, this is probably a common thing between the two of them. And then finally, David becomes king. <laughs> he could have his brother put to death or put his, have his brother, you know, shine the chariot wheels or something. He could do anything. But he makes him head over in his, in his administration, the head over the tribes of Judah. In his administration. What grace. And again, that's the kind of character we see in David that we didn't see in Saul. But verse 15, it says, But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Remember in the previous chapter that David was recruited by Saul to come and play whenever he had that spirit come upon him, that David would play the lyre or the harp and and soothe Saul. And so sometimes he would go back from Saul's, uh, you know, occupying that position at times, and he would go back to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And notice how faithful David was. He didn't leave those sheep. He left them with a keeper, certainly. Some, maybe somebody else in the family. Maybe the, the next oldest from him. Maybe he kept the sheep while David was ministering to Saul. But it says in verse 17, Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. So he's in Bethlehem. He runs. And he's got these supplies to bring to those three eldest brothers to bless them. Because right now, there's really not a battle. It's just 40 days of Goliath coming out taunting night and day and everybody else quaking in their boots. That's what it was. And so David comes and he brings his brothers some victuals, some some food. And notice that David does it. He doesn't argue. He's a very obedient young man. And just like Jesse sending his son David, God the Father, we see a lot of the characteristics of Jesus in the life of David because Jesse sent his son to be the Savior. (laughs) He didn't know it at the time, but but Jesse sent his son David, and he ultimately was going to be a Savior of of Israel, a Savior. But what does it say in 1 John 4.14? And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. We see a lot of these same uh, characteristics of the Son of God, Jesus, and we see that in David, some of these characteristics. And notice what he said to him. He says, carry, and also carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousands. So the, the, the thousand, the, the, the regiment that his brothers belonged to, that captain over that thousand, David or Jesse said, take these cheeses to him, and he can distribute those to the guys, and, and maybe they can enjoy that. And then also, see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So, verse 19, so Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. They really weren't fighting. They were yelling and, and, and stuff like that, but really nothing was happening. So David arose, verse 20, in the morning. He left the sheep, notice, with a keeper, 
And he took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. And so, again, David, this young man, faithful and obedient, unlike his predecessor, Saul, just listening and doing what his dad had told him. You know, that was one thing, a hallmark of David that we never saw in Saul. And it's a, it's a, good, it's a good characteristic for you and I to be obedient you know, we, when God wants us to do something, we don't argue with him. We don't say, God, I've got a better idea. I've got a better plan. I can get there faster if you just let me. And with God, you know, the ends don't justify the means. There's certainly a lot of ways to do things, but God's way is the best way, however he says to do it, even if it takes twice as long, because he's more concerned about the journey in between. Because what happens in that journey? We change we're challenged. We change in that process. It's very different. And David was such a man. And that's the kind of person that I want to be. I want to be obedient to the Lord. When he shows me something, I don't want to just say it's about, that's for somebody else. No, it's, it's for me. I need to listen to this. And I, I not only need to listen to it, but I actually need to do something about it. I need to hear it, and then appropriate that in my life. See, I think that's where we, as Christians, we can fail sometimes. And again, not to bum you out here, but it's good to exhort you because I need it myself. We hear a lot. We take in a lot. But be careful that we don't take in so much that we just become numb to the facts. We, become, we can become numb to the things that we hear, so much so that we're just kind of like living the way we want to live, but we're taking in all this information. Challenge yourself not to be that way and to say, God, whatever I hear, help me to do it. Help me to do it. And when I'm not doing it, convict my heart that I would do it. It's really quite simple. But it's going to require some heart surgery. It's going to require a denying of self. And God is in the midst of that. He is all about that. Because what does the Bible tell us? That we should deny ourselves, right? We should deny ourselves, to put off those, that, that list of ugly things that Paul tells us in Colossians. Put off these things and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, put off fornication, put off lying, malice, and evil thinkings, and evil doings, promiscuity, sexual weird things, and put away all these things, drunkenness, and revelries, and fornications, and lying, and stealing, and shooting, and chewing tobacco, and hanging out with those who do. I'm only kidding on that part. That's not in the Bible. But you get the idea. So verse 21, it says, For Israel and the, and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array. So this must have been like, they're, they're, they're getting ready to do something because 40 days have gone on. Nobody's rising to the occasion. So they're going to they're gonna get ready and go to battle. It's going to be a bloodshed, right? So David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, and he ran to the army, and he came and he greeted his brothers. And then, as he talked with them, there was, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming out from the armies of the Philistines. So David happened to be there at the right time when Goliath is coming out spewing all of his nonsense. <laughs> David just happens to be right up there with the army, and he's listening to this guy and the things that he's saying. And he spoke according to the... Um, the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, 
fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Dreadfully afraid. Again, Saul was afraid. Afraid. He was impotent. And so now, so are the armies of Israel. And Goliath, he was a spiritual, physical, and emotional mountain before them. As they're looking at him physically, none of them can size up to him. As they look at him spiritually, he's a very dark, evil man. Emotionally, they are freaking out because in their hearts, it's like psychological warfare. This guy is a mountain. He's tall and he's ready for battle. Seasoned warrior. And there's nobody who's going to get by him, or at least they think. So the psychological, the emotional warfare that these men are going through. But God. Would to God that they had the same spiritual eyes as the psalmist. In Psalm 121, what is it? It says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Goliath was this mountain before these men. All the army of Israel, he was the mountain in front of them, the obstacle. He was the obstacle. He was the physical, spiritual, and emotional obstacle right before them, and they were all scared to death. But the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where, whence comes my help? And then the answer comes, my help comes from the Lord. Would to God that they, of course, the psalm wasn't written then. But would to God they understood that at that time. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. That's what these men needed to know. And that's why the psalmist would later write that psalm. And we know that to be true right now. Where do you go when you've got a mountain in front of you? When you've got your own Goliath standing in front of you? It could be something. It could be a health issue. It could be a relationship problem that you're having. It could be a lost job. It could be a number of things. What is it? It could be a debt problem. It could be a sin issue that says mountain. It's, it's, it's like Goliath is standing right before you, taunting you, saying, you can't, you can't win. You'll never win. You'll never get over this. Come on, come on. You know you want that. Come on, you know that it feels good. You keep doing it. If you have a drug problem, he's always taunting you, saying, come a little closer. You can do it without getting burned. Just go a little farther. You can handle it. You're a big boy. You're a big woman. You can take care of it. You're strong enough in the Lord. You can do this. And the devil will just taunt you. What is your hill? What is your mountain that's before you tonight? And then ask yourself, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? There's only one place where help can truly come. Really good help. Help that won't fade away. My help comes from Jehovah. Jehovah God, God the Father. That's where my help comes from. And in fact, we don't even fight a physical battle. As they're looking at Goliath, there's so, much about, there's so much about him that was physical, but there was a lot about him that was very spiritual as he's taunting them. He is like Satan incarnate in a sense. And what does Paul tell us in Ephesians? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why well, aren't we talking about armor? You know, we look out at Goliath, and he's all decked out with this hundreds of pounds of brass on this guy. And here's David, 
He tries to put on Saul's armor, as we see, and it just doesn't fit. But he had a, a staff in his hand, and he had a sling and five smooth stones in his little bag. And he had faith in God. That's all he needed to wipe this guy out. And I love that. I love that. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful scene. And God is always doing that. He's always taking the underdog when the whole world says, there's no possible way you're going to get through this. You are just not capable. You're not smart enough. You're not big enough. You're not talented enough. You don't have it within you to do this. And God goes, oh, I love it when people say that because I'm going to use my servant, my, my servant, and fill in the name of your name, fill in the blank with your name. I'm going to use them, and they're going to, they're going to do it in a way that you hadn't even considered yet. Big mouth. <laughs> I love that. But then he goes through and he lists those, those things of, uh, of armor that you and I have. But what does Peter say in chapter 5, verse 8? He said, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, what is he doing? He's walking throughout. Uh, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's exactly who Goliath is. He's the lion out there taunting with bated breath, just desiring somebody to come out and entreat him. And that's who the devil is. And he's coming after all of you. In fact, he's always coming. He's looking for a little area of compromise where he can build a wedge. He's looking for any little area where he can just stick in thing and he's going to pry himself open. He's going to, you know, just a little, he's going to get in there and he's going to pry that open a little bit and then sneak in there and create all kinds of problems, wreak havoc of your life. That's why prayer is so important. That's why walking in purity is so important. That's why being in the word and being in prayer is so important. So important. We need that. We need that spiritual armor, faith, trust, hope. And if you think about it, this was a battle between good and evil. David representing God the Father and, and Satan representing Goliath. Good always wins. And in the end, we've just finished Revelation on Sunday mornings. God always wins. Why does he win? Because he's all-powerful. There's no power but of God. They might get away with things for a season, and it may look like they're winning, but trust me, their day is coming. And what does it say in Psalm 2? The Lord is going to laugh. He's going to have them in derision. And I don't want to be on the other end of God when I have rejected him to the end. And neither do you. Because God has the ability to do all of these things, to bring them into derision, to be losing their minds, completely deceived and deceiving. Can you imagine? And yet you and I have the wonderful privilege of knowing Jesus and having that the confidence that he's with us. And he treats us so differently, doesn't he? He loves us so dearly. And yet the enemy will just, he, all he wants to do is lie to you. He wants to rob you. He wants to steal. He wants to destroy you. He wants to take everything holy from you. He wants to take any hope that you have. He wants to take it all and he wants to stomp it. He wants to crush it. He's like a roaring lion, like Peter said, seeking whom he may devour. So verse 25, so the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king, speaking of Saul, will enrich him with great riches, will give him not only that, but his daughter. 
You know what that means? If you're Saul's, if you marry Saul's daughter, that means you're part of the family. That means gravy, train. Things are looking good. You're sitting at the table with Saul's girl. And not only that, and give his father, father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Boy, the, a nice little package. Can you imagine the men? They're like, oh, wow, no taxes. I get Saul's daughter. Riches. I get the new car. And then I get that Pantero. I get that fancy car. Then David... We'll finish here in just two verses here. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is, and, and I love this, he's asking a question, then he's overcome by, you know, he's asking the question. He's like, well, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this vomitous mass? <laughs> you mentioned David. Who is this guy? He's nothing and I don't believe David is like, you know, he, he's not a really big guy. He's a good-looking guy, a redhead probably. Probably not real muscular either. He's probably kind of thin. But David didn't have any false bravado. He was so angry at the fact that, that these guys would be calling, that, that Goliath would be taunting God's people. You notice this has nothing to do with David? It's not about him personally? Think of that. That's what, that's what is so important here, is this is not about David at all. David saw what this man was saying and doing to the armies of Israel, whom God has chosen, whom God delights in, the people of God. That's what he had a problem with. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And again, not about David at all. And this is a mark of a great shepherd. He never looked at himself. He was only caring about God's glory and the people of God. David was not a hireling. He couldn't be paid to do what he was doing. He didn't do it for the money. Even though he heard about the package that was coming, if he did, that was, he, I don't even think he was thinking about that at all. He was just like, you know what? I've served God out in the field, and I've gotten to know him at night. I've looked up at the stars, and I've seen, I, and I bet David had written down some of these psalms already before they were even published in the, in the hymnal, in the psalm book. And he says, I remember being out there in the stars at night. I know who this God is, and he loves me, and I know what he's done for me. And I'm not going to sit here and listen to him defy God's people. And that was his motivation. The other stuff, I don't, I don't really think was a big deal to him. And David also knew that if God had anointed him king as he had, then God was going to preserve him through this battle. Remember in the chapter before that he was anointed by Samuel? That you're going to be king? Well, he's not. The coronation hasn't happened yet, has it? So he's thinking to himself, if God is in this, and he's putting on my heart to go out to battle with this guy, I trust God. He told me I was going to be king. And if that's the case, then this guy's going down. <laughs> because God knew. God knew. And David had that, that faith. What a wonderful thing. 
And what God had prepared in David during those days in isolation in the pasture with the sheep, he was going to bring into full view and bring to fruition at this very moment. So he prepared him in private, and now it's going to be very visible. And that's always the way God works. He may take years to prepare a person in obscurity where nobody's caring, nobody's listening, nobody's watching, nobody even cares, and God is preparing. And then all of a sudden, that person, at one moment, one defining moment, a watershed moment like this, all of a sudden, all of that comes to fruition. It comes out like a blossoming flower, and it's all the glory of God. And that's exactly what happened to David. And notice, we'll stop here. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. The riches, the daughter, free from taxes. But again, I don't think David was concerned about that so much. He was more incensed that this giant was defaming God, the one whom David knew very well. The one whom David relied upon, his relationship was such that he's like, that's all I care about. I like that. And we haven't even got to the battle yet. So we're going to stop there because when we get together next week, we're going to look at the time when David's, now his oldest brother is going to just let him have it. As he's there at the front, his older brother's going to disdain him and tell him what a runt he is. What'd you do, come up here to see the blood? Did you come up here to see some arms dismembered? What'd you come up here for? I know you were naughty in your thinking. And where are those few little sheep that you got in the, in the, in the pasture? Did you leave them with somebody else? You know, just taunting him. Do you feel like the devil's taunting you like that? He does. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord. It's, uh, Lord, certainly the stuff of Sunday school. Lord, how many coloring pages have been drawn in Sunday schools all throughout the world of David and Goliath. And God, more so than just the battle, Lord, we know that there is this whole story, this whole incident that we see before us and that we're going to look at next week is really one of trust and faith and of preparation and and coming to fruition. Lord, you're so good about that. And we thank you, Lord, that you're preparing each of us today. You're, You're preparing us in the basement of our hearts that we can't see, Lord. You're doing the the deep work that nobody can see. And Lord, you have a time yet ahead of us. It could be witnessing to a loved one. It could be showing up and being the right person at the right time, at the right moment to say the right thing, to minister to somebody where you're going to meet them and save their soul. Lord, you're preparing us. Lord, help us to be cognizant of that and to be open and willing to serve you, to be willing to be obedient to you. So, Father, have your way this week and just continue to keep us in your hand, Lord, and protect us from the enemy's devices. We know that they are many. And, Lord, thank you again for your love for all of us, Lord. I pray that all my brothers and sisters tonight would be encouraged, they'd be strengthened in the faith of Jesus Christ, our soon and coming King, in whose name we pray. Amen.